If you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Matthew chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar where that is, it's uh, actually the first book of the New Testament. Uh, If you'd like to follow along in one of the Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 757. As we prepare for Christmas as a church family, we are going to be taking the next four weeks to study the first two chapters of Matthew that share the story of Jesus coming as an infant. And if you've turned to Matthew 1, we'll read the first 17 verses. And as you look down, you see nothing but a list of names. Now, I know what you're thinking. You sit there and ask, is this guy seriously about to get up there and read off a list of names? And the answer is yes. I promise you, if this is your first time here, that this is not the norm. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually making a point, and I hope that you'll see that point later on. You you wonder what possible application could come from a seemingly boring part of Scripture. But I promise you that if you just bear with me, you will see a contemporary application. So go ahead and look to verse 1 of Matthew 1, and we will uh, read this together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram, and Jeram, the father of Uzziah. We're halfway there. Is everybody still with me? We good? Hang in there. You're doing great. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matthan, and Matthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We did it. Good job. We're going we're gonna to pretend that I knew how to pronounce all of those names. Let's pray before we go into our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. 
We know how authoritative it is, Lord, and we do believe that it's breathed out by you, Father. And so I pray for our time uh, that it would be edifying and that your spirit would speak. In your holy name I pray. Amen. This past week, you or your loved ones probably labored for hours in the kitchen, with it being Thanksgiving and all. You poured hours into preparing a special meal. You put in extra effort to make sure that everything was just right, that everything needed to be cooked just right, and everything needed to look just right, and everything needed to taste just right. And you slaved in the kitchen for hours, only for the meal to then be devoured in a matter of minutes. However, I hope you know that your labor and meal preparation, while tedious and long, is not in vain. And not just on Thanksgiving, but any meal for that matter that we prepare. You see, at the end of the day, we must be very careful in our meal preparation, and we must be very careful in our meal selection because it will either contribute to our health, our physical health, or it will contribute to serious health problems over the course of time. The analogy as it pertains to our time today comes in when we examine the health of the church. According to Scripture, the church is a body, a body of believers that we should be uh, concerned about our health. Just as you're concerned about your physical health, we should be concerned about our spiritual health of the church body. And so a good question to ask if you call FAC your home is, what is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? Mark Dever, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., actually wrote a book to answer this question, and he defines the answer for us in, in his book. He says, a healthy church is a congregation that increasingly reflects God's character as his character is revealed in his word. Let me repeat that for you. A healthy church is a congregation that increasingly reflects God's character as it's defined and revealed in his word. This ties in a little bit to what we were speaking about a couple weeks ago about how God has revealed himself to us, right? Through his word, he has intervened into his creation. He has told us who he is. And so what Dever is saying is that if we hope to be a healthy church, we will reflect God's character as it is defined in his word. And Dever goes on to make the claim that if this is the case, He writes that the most obvious place to begin building a healthy church is to call on Christians to listen to God's word. He says, God's word is the source of all life and all health. That's why it's important for us as we come here Sunday mornings and you hear someone preach that they always start with God's word as the foundation of their message. You see, sermon prep actually has been likened by other pastors to meal prep. Just as you uh, poured hours into prep for Thanksgiving, the preacher who stands behind the pulpit should prepare for hours a meal, a spiritual meal, if you will, for the congregation in hopes that as we consume sermons, 
as we consume Bible teaching enough meals over the course of the time, we will be healthy. We will reflect God's character as it's defined in his word. And so you'll notice that every time I come up to preach, I usually always begin with the words, open up to this passage in the Bible. Take up your Bibles and open them up. This is intentional because FAC has a firm commitment to what we would call in the church world, expositional preaching. Expository preaching, simply put, exposes God's word. It it takes the scripture and it opens it up and, and says, this is what God would have to say to us today. This is what God wants us to know. In expository preaching, you start with the passage and you ask God, what would you have for us? What would you have for us? And the foundation of the sermon, the main point of the sermon starts with scripture. Actually, the point of the passage should be the point of the sermon. As opposed to another style or another kind of preaching that we would call topical preaching, which actually starts with a topic or an idea, and then it seeks to apply scripture to the topic. It kind of tacks scripture along with the topic. Now, I'm not saying that we should never listen to topical preaching. And I'm not saying that topical preaching never has a place in the pulpit here at FAC, because sometimes certain topics do need to be addressed from a biblical standpoint. What I am saying is this. Our main diet as a body of believers, should be expository preaching because it's healthy. Now, it's okay to eat Chick-fil-A every once in a while, right? It's good. I get it. But if you start eating Chick-fil-A for every single meal, it's going to have certain consequences. It's going to have ramifications. It's going to have an effect. It certainly tastes good. That's what I want, but it will have its consequences. Mark Dever also makes the claim that if topical preaching is your main spiritual diet, you won't be conformed to the image of God, but rather you'll be conformed to the image of the pastor. And you and I both know that you do not want to be conformed to my image because then we'd all be Browns fans and we'd be a miserable bunch. I promise you. No, our goal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is God's word in the flesh, which is why we consume on the majority, uh, which is why what we consume on the majority of Sundays needs to start in God's word. And when we hold to this conviction of expository preaching, I know that God will move in powerful ways because his word tells us this. His word tells us how authoritative it actually is. His word tells us what it is actually capable of. That's Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy three sixteen. This is what it says: All Scripture, all Scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse is telling us that the entirety of the Bible 
is breathed out by God. It basically means that it's inspired by God. So it would be, uh, it would be like you and I sitting down and you with a pen and me telling you, this is exactly what I want you to write. Don't add any words. Don't take away any words. Write exactly what I tell you to write. This is what God did through his spirit to the human authors of the Bible. He directed each stroke of the pen and all of it, yes, all of it is useful. There is value to all of it to teach, to reproof, to correct, to train for righteousness. What this verse is saying is that Every passage of scripture can be used to help us and equip us to be healthy, to reflect the character of God. And so, is it bold this morning to open up a list of names on a Sunday? Absolutely. You may be sitting here saying, Mike, I brought my family here today and they never come to church and this is probably going to be the last time they come to church because you sat there and read a list of names. Is it bold? Yes. But I am so confident in the word of God and the power of God's word preached that I believe the Holy Spirit can move through us and teach us even as we look at just a list of names. I am so confident about what God says about his word that I believe our time in this passage today will be edifying. That's my theological appeal to you of how to treat such passages of scripture. But let me also make an emotional emotional appeal for you to consider and why this is more than just a list of names. If you go to 180 Greenwich Street in New York City, you will come across two memorial pools that are the footprint of the Twin Towers that collapsed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. They are a memorial to the lives that we lost in those attacks. And around those pools, etched in bronze, are the names of each person who died in those attacks. But that's just a list of names. It's no big deal, right? You see, in our modern context, a list of names means so much more. Perhaps you know somebody whose name is etched in that memorial. That person meant something to you. No, you see, those names point to real people, to real flesh, to real stories that are all connected to a larger story. The names that we just read from scripture this morning are real people with real flesh, with real stories that point and are connected to God's larger redemption story. This is why Matthew writes his gospel. Right? He, he wants to show people how they connect to the larger redemption story. And he wants to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of promises that God made not only to the people of Israel, but to all nations, to you and me. And he introduces us to this concept of promises fulfilled by listing a bunch of names. And so let's look at just a handful of these names to see how they connect to this larger story. The first name that's listed, it's the most important, and it's the very reason we celebrate Christmas. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew's writing about a man. His name was Jesus. 
And many people get confused with this term Christ. They think it's just Jesus' last name, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, The term Christ is not a name, but rather a title or, or a role. One commentator writes that Matthew uses this title of Christ to describe not the human background of Jesus, but his theological status. This term Christ actually came from the Hebrew word Messiah, And it was a very specific term that came to be associated with God's promise for a savior for Israel. He's saying Jesus is the savior that God promised us all those years ago. This would have been a bold claim for Matthew to make because there were very specific and pretty significant criteria that the Messiah, the Christ, had to meet. And so Matthew calls Jesus the Christ, He's saying, this man is the Savior that we've all been waiting for and looking for. And then he lists names that support his claim. And these names would have reminded the original readers of stories and of promises from the past and would have shown them that Jesus was not just an afterthought. Jesus was not a change of plan, but rather he is, him entering into the world, is the focal point, the climax of all human history. And it's almost as if Matthew is saying, let me tell you why you should pay attention to this historical figure, Jesus, who is the Christ. Let me tell you why he's the Christ. Let me tell you where he comes from. And then he lists this genealogy. Where does he come from? First, he's referenced as the son of David. He's a descendant of David. David is one of the most significant characters in all the Bible. Believe it or not, David is actually referenced more in the Bible than anybody else. David was God's chosen man to be the king of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7, God actually speaks to David through a prophet named Nathan. And he promises David certain things. He promises to establish his kingdom forever through the line of David. Take a look at what 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 13 says. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan. He says to David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I'm gonna, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What God is promising David is, David, your family line, your offspring, from your offspring, there will come a king who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus, being a descendant of David, the son of David, shows that he is the rightful heir to Israel's throne, that he is royalty. He is eligible to be the Christ. And it's important to understand this concept, this theme of kingship, because it appears throughout the history of Israel. If we hope to understand how significant this is, we have to understand some history here, okay? This idea of kingship in Israel began in 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8, Israel as a nation has finally been established, God has taken them into the promised land. They've been given land. They've been established as a nation. And to this point, God has been their leader. 
and he has used prophets to speak on his behalf and to govern on his behalf. In 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites go to Samuel, who's a prophet of God, and they demand a king. They essentially tell God, we want to be like everybody else. Would you just give us a king like everybody else, like every other nation, a king who will fight on our behalf? And God rebukes them, and he basically tells them, I am your king who fights on your behalf. I am the one who's leading you and governing you. And better yet, if I give you a human king, let me tell you what's going to happen. And then he lists for the Israelites all the things that will go wrong if they have a human king. He basically tells them, if I give you a human king, he's going to be sinful, he's going to be fallen, and he's going to be broken. And so he's not going to be there to serve your needs. He's going to actually be there for you to serve his needs. And after this, a very convincing argument, Israel goes back to God and says, well, we don't care. Just give us a king anyway. And so God lets them lie in the bed that they made for themselves. He gives them a king. And this genealogy, specifically in verses 6 through 11, show us some of the kings that they got. It shows us that God was right and that these kings were just awful. And if you're an original reader and you read these names, uh, you, you realize that this list is just a hot mess. Right? You come across some of these names and you remember the stories of the kings of old. In verse 7, you would read about King Rehoboam. And they'd say, oh, I remember, I, I've heard about King Rehoboam. He, he was a king that was extremely harsh towards his people. He was extremely harsh towards his kingdom. And it was so bad, his leadership, that it resulted in a civil war that eventually split the kingdom of Israel. That's how bad of a king Rehoboam was and how evil he was. His son, Abijah, in the same verse, we are also told was evil. If you look ahead to verse 9, Jeram, according to 2 Kings 8, was evil. And verse 9 as well, we come across Ahaz, who was a terrible king. He was evil. King Ahaz burned his own son to death in order to make a pagan offering. And once again, as the original reader, you're looking through these names and you're saying, that one's bad, that one's bad, that one's bad. And then you come to verse 10 and you read about Manasseh, who probably was the worst of them all. Manasseh also burned his own son alive as a pagan offering, but he also defiled the temple. He built altars to pagan gods and turned the temple which was supposed to be a place of worship. That was supposed to be a place that glorified God. It was supposed to represent the dwelling place of God. He took that place and turned it into a place of idolatry, right? He was so bad. Manasseh was such an evil king that God actually told him that you're worse than the pagans that lived here before you. See, this promised land, this land of Canaan, the Canaanites were evil, wicked people. And God used the Israelites to punish them, to banish them from this land. And now God is looking at Manasseh, a king of Israel, a Hebrew, and he's saying, it would have been better off if I just left the pagans in here because you're worse than them. That's how evil you are. That's how bad you are. And you read about these guys and in light of Thanksgiving and getting families together, you're probably thinking, well, this makes me feel much better about my own dysfunctional family. 
You look at Jesus' family tree and you're thinking, hey, I don't have it so bad. These kings were so bad that we come to the end of this list, verses 6 through 11, and it culminates to the Babylonian exile. They are so evil and so wicked that God allows the Babylonians, a foreign nation, to just come in and demolish the Israelites, demolishes the temple. The Babylonians bring Israel to their knees, and there's no longer a throne to even sit on. The land is just laid to waste. And through all of this, the Israelites would remember the promise that God made to David. And they would probably feel as though something just wasn't adding up. How on earth could God establish a kingdom forever through the line of David if this is what we've been brought to? If evil king after evil king has brought us to such a low place? How on earth can there be an eternal throne when we don't even have a throne for a king to sit on? You see, the problem for them was actually twofold. Because as you look at this list, not all the kings were evil from a human perspective. Some of the names on this list, uh, in this genealogy, they were godly men. But herein lies their problem. One of two things is going to happen. Your kings are either corrupt and evil and wicked, and you don't want them to reign on the throne forever, or they are godly, but eventually succumb to death. It's a funny thing that happens to humans. They eventually die. And so you've got a, you've got a problem. They're either going to be evil or they're going to die. So how on earth can God fulfill this promise to David? How on earth is this even possible? Enter Jesus, who is the Christ. Matthew will take his whole gospel to explain that Jesus is the first heir to the throne who isn't corrupt, that actually came to serve, not be served, but he's also eternal. When he dies, he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave. You have a perfect king that sits on the throne forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. However, the promise of God didn't start with David. It actually started sooner. There were other promises made centuries prior to David, which is why in verse 1, Jesus also is referenced as the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of the people of Israel. He's the main guy. He is the ancestor of all ancestors for Israel. And here Matthew is connecting Jesus to the original covenant, the original promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham represents the moment that God chose Israel to be a blessing to all people, to all humanity. Right? This is what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
In this covenant, God promises to give Abraham a great land. Right? That was Canaan. It was the promised land. He promises to make him a great nation, which was Israel through his descendants. And through these descendants, he promises to bless the nations of all the earth. This, of course, would be fulfilled through Jesus, a descendant of Abraham who dies on the cross for the sins of the world. And so for Matthew to put these two names together side by side, Jesus being the son of David and the son of Abraham, Matthew is making the distinction that not only is he the rightful heir to the throne, to the physical throne of Israel, but he is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. He is indeed the long-awaited Savior. Jesus, once again, was the fulfillment of God's promises, not just to Israel, but to all people, all nations. And this is supported by a few other surprising names listed in the genealogy. This past week, my family and I went out and got our Christmas tree, and we put it up, and um, we, it's a favorite tradition of ours to decorate it with the ornaments that we've obtained through the years. Now, some of these ornaments are very, very special to us, and they're very, very beautiful. These are the type of the ornaments uh, that we're proud to display, and so they have a great place on the tree. It's right in the front at eye level. These are the ornaments that when you walk in, I want you to see our tree and I want you to see these ornaments first because we love them and they're sentimental and they're beautiful and we're proud to display them. Now there's some other ornaments that aren't that great. They're kind of cheap. They don't really mean anything to us, but they've just kind of stuck around through the years. We can't seem to really separate ourselves from these ornaments. We also have a wonderful place for those ornaments. It's called the back of the tree. These are ones that we aren't necessarily going to uh, proudly display. When ancient writers wrote out genealogies, there were multiple names that they could use and multiple different things that they could do, and they would have the opportunity to essentially display the names that they were proud of and loved to show off. They would list the names that made their family look really good. And so for the genealogy here in Matthew, David and Abraham are those ornaments that you would proudly display to a Jewish audience. This, this, these made Jesus look really good. These are the ones that we can brag on a little bit. However, there are some names here that are a little glaring, We've already established that some of the names of this list are real shady characters, but there is another group of names that I want to point out in verses 3 through 6. And these names for the original Jewish audience would have stuck out like a sore thumb. If you look closely in those verses 3 through 6, you'll see that there are four women listed in Jesus' genealogy. Now, it it was not uncommon for women to be listed in ge- genealogies. Okay, so, so it, it comes as no surprise that these women are included. However, uh, from a legal perspective, the only names that really counted in a legal setting were the names of, of the men, right? In order for this genealogy to have any kind of legal validity, only the men needed to be listed. And so while the women were not required in ancient ge- genealogies, we know that whenever they are included, they're there for a specific pur- purpose. 
Matthew is trying to tell us something through these names. Now, you would think that Matthew, a Jewish man writing for a Jewish audience, would use women that made Jesus' family line look really good, like the ornaments that you'd put on the front of the tree, just like Abraham and David. You'd think he'd want to display the women that bring honor to the family name. You'd think he'd use names like the great matriarchs, like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel, if you're familiar with those stories, but he doesn't. Instead, he uses the names of women that would be likened to the ornament that you put in the back of the tree. But in an odd way, Matthew is proudly displaying them. Matthew is putting them out there for everybody to see. The first woman listed, woman listed is Tamar in verse 3. Her story can be found in Genesis 38 uh, for your own homework. It's a strange story and we won't get into But she was a Canaanite woman who took her father-in-law, whose name was Judah, a Hebrew, and tricked him into bearing children with her. It's a brief story of Tamar. In verse 5, the second woman listed is Rahab. Now, this is a little bit more of a familiar story, perhaps, to you in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute uh, in Jericho that hid the two spies from Israel. This was before Israel went into the promised land. They decided to to, uh, spy out the land. So they send two spies into Jericho, a a pagan city. And Rahab crosses paths with them somehow, and she helps them. And so when the Israelites march in and march around Jericho, and God brings down the walls of Jericho, and Israel conquers Jericho, Rahab and her family are the only ones to survive. She helped because she helped the Israelites. The third woman listed in this genealogy is Ruth. She's also in verse 5. She has an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to her story. You can find it in, in the book that bears her namesake. Ruth was a Moabite widow who committed to accompanying her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. It, it was through this journey that she ends up marrying a Jewish man named Boaz, And she ends up being the great-grandmother to King David. That's Ruth. And finally, in verse 6, we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. While her name isn't listed, we know this is referencing Bathsheba. You know, Bathsheba was the woman that David commits adultery with and then later has her husband Uriah killed. Now, there's some debate on whether or not Bathsheba was a Jew, but we know that she was the granddaughter of a Gilanite. The Gilanites lived in Canaan while the Israelites lived there. The, the Gilanites uh, were not Jewish, but they lived in the promised land alongside with the Israelites. And so I, I think we can say that she was a foreigner. And so I hope you've made the connection already why these women stick out like a sore thumb. It isn't necessarily because they're women. It isn't necessarily because they had shady pasts, because we already talked about that with the kings. No, I think these women would stick out like a sore thumb to the original Jewish audience because they are all non-Israelites. None of them are Jewish. None of these women were Hebrew. And this is striking, especially in the light of what we've already discussed about Abraham and David. See, for the Jewish people, 
It was often Israel and then everybody else. It was Israel against the world. So why would Matthew include these non-Jewish women when he could have easily left them out and it wouldn't change a thing? The genealogy would still hold up. Once again, I believe Matthew is making a point. This may be some conjecture here, but commentators seem to agree that Matthew wants his readers to see that God has been using all types of people from all types of backgrounds to move his plan of redemption forward because his plan of redemption is for all types of people from all types of backgrounds. One commentator writes that with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the dawning of salvation has arrived for all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of status. By including these unexpected names in the messianic genealogy, Matthew shows that God can use anyone, however marginalized or despised, to bring about his purposes. You see, God always had a plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. He always had it in mind to bring you back into a relationship with him. And he used the most unlikely people from the most unlikely places to do it. And we see this theme throughout Matthew carry all the way to the end. Matthew makes a profound link in his gospel from the beginning of his book to the end of his book in this regard. See, in this genealogy, Matthew is saying that God fulfills his promises through an intricate intervention with human history. And then you read the gospel of Matthew, which I would encourage you to do this Christmas season, and you see how his plan of redemption unfolds. You see how God saves his people through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he came. You see why Jesus is the focal point, the climax of all human history. And then you come to the end of the book, Matthew 28. And what are the last words that Jesus says to his disciples? What is the last thing that Matthew wants to leave with his reader in the gospel? Let's take a look at it. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is how the gospel of Matthew ends. Don't you see that just as God used all types of people from all types of background to move his plan of redemption forward before Jesus stepped in the world, God continues to use all types of people from all types of backgrounds to move his plan of redemption forward after Jesus ascended to heaven. If you are a believer this morning, you are a link in this chain. You are a part of this plan not just for what God has done in you, but how he is going to use you to transform other people through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer of Jesus, you fit 
in this plan by being a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ, by declaring to the world the same thing that Matthew declared 2,000 years ago, that this Jesus, this infant that we celebrate at Christmas is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And we need to be passionate about just devoting our lives to showing the world that Jesus is the Christ. And if you're not a believer, if you don't know why we celebrate Jesus, I would encourage you to look into these things. We have made bold claims. Matthew makes bold claims that Jesus is the Christ. And in his original promise to Abraham, he tells Abraham, those who bless your name, he's basically saying those who bless Jesus, those who are on Jesus' side, I will bless them. And those who curse Jesus, I will curse. I will be against them. That is a bold claim and you owe it to yourself to look into such claims. And I would ask you to consider maybe for the first time this morning, turning to God and saying, God, for the first time, I realize that Jesus is my savior, that he came on a mission and he died on the cross so that I may have life. Turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the first time, let this Christmas perhaps be the first real Christmas you've ever celebrated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just a list of names a list of names that is authoritative, that is transforming, Lord. I thank you that you used men and women from unlikely places to bring about your salvation plan, Lord, because I would be hopelessly lost without it. And I thank you, Lord, that you continue to use all types of people from all types of backgrounds to continue to move forward with your redemption plan, Father. And we look forward to the day when your redemption plan will be finalized when Christ comes again to retrieve his bride. We praise you for these things, Lord. I lift up our offering to you, Lord, as we close out our service. I pray, Father, that we would have loose hands on our possessions. Father, that we would see how you have blessed us and we would seek to bless others with what you have so richly blessed us with. We understand, Lord, making Jesus' name great uh, requires resources, And so as we collect resources, Lord, would you use it? Would you multiply it in in an amazing way? Would you provide for us so that we can make Jesus' name known? We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.